Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to college basketball in the Garden State. I'm Jerry Carino, and I'm joined by longtime colleague Steve Edelson, who will have a full report on Mammoth's Beer Garden, which I know you won't want to miss. I certainly don't. We'll also have Chris Eisman, who will come on to talk about Rutgers' nail-biting loss to second-ranked Purdue. But first... Our guest this week is someone who, if you live in Jersey, if you like basketball, if you have a pulse, you know him. In high school, Grant Billmeyer helped lead St. Pat's to a Tournament of Champions title. In college, he helped Seton Hall to two NCAA tournament berths. As a Seton Hall assistant coach, he was integral to the Pirates' success under Kevin Willard. Now, he's a first-year head coach at NJIT. And the Highlanders are coming off not just their first America East win of the season, but an all-time comeback. They rallied from 22 down at halftime to beat UMBC on the road Saturday, the biggest comeback in the program's 18-year Division I history. Grant, welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. Hey guys, uh, great to be on here. Thank, thanks a ton for having me. Um, you know, and still coming off an incredible high. The guys played extremely well on Saturday. Um, you know, it was one of those things when you're down 22 at halftime, you know, you got to switch it up. So, you know, we decided to go to a full court press. Um, and I knew one of two things were going to happen. One, we were going to have an historic comeback or two, uh, you know, we were going to lose the game by 50 points, but our guys, you know, they, 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 I, I, I didn't go crazy. I didn't go nuts at halftime. Um, and they kind of went crazy and nuts on each other. Um, just said, you know, we, we, we're better than this. We're, we're better than being down 22 points on the road. They, they took a personal and they came out and they were just flying around. And, um, you know, they, they started making plays. I, I, I challenged Kel DeGraft, who had zero points and zero rebounds at halftime, to step up his game and, and play like a senior he responded with 18 points and seven rebounds in the second half. Um, so he, he's a very talented player, and you know he, he's unfortunately had a lot of injuries. But you know when he's been healthy and in the right mindset and playing with confidence, he's been as good as a front court player as there is in the league. You know, Grant. Again, congratulations on a great win. Um, you know, it just seems like whenever guys who have Seton Hall connections get together, it's kind of a special thing. And, and you've got a game coming up uh, against Lavelle Sanders, a Binghamton coach. Um, how well do you know him? And, and maybe talk a little about him and kind of that bond between Seton Hall guys. Yeah, you know what? I, I've just honestly gotten to know Lavelle probably in the last, I'd say, two to three years. Um, you know, we 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 know each other more so, mutual friends. I know him and Shaheen played together at Seton Hall, and obviously, I worked with Shaheen for I think seven or eight years. Um, but me, me and Lavelle, you know, we like I said, we we've only gotten to know each other the last two to three years, but um, it's a relationship that's been growing. You know, I really enjoyed being up with him at the America East uh, meetings in the summer and just spending time with him. Ter- terrific coach, and obviously, as you guys know, unbelievable person. Yeah, and this, uh, just so uh, our listeners know that Seton Hall has five former players who are current Division One men's basketball head coaches. Only Duke 
has more alums in the head coaching ranks in D1. So it's a great distinction. I want to go a little bit back into the Seton Hall past, and then we'll come back and talk NJIT present day, Grant. Uh, a little over a year ago, you know, we lost Lewis Orr, good man, good coach who passed away. And, you know, I, I broke in as a beat writer uh, when you were a freshman and Lewis was coaching. And it can be hard when you're a young beat writer, you know, to feel your way, depending on how, how the coach wants to be with you. And, and he, Lou could not have been better with me. It was a blessing to break in with him as a head coach. And I want to ask you about what it was like to play for him and how he helped shape you as a coach. Grant, you still with us? All right, I guess he's gonna he's gonna sign back in. Uh, in well, the meantime, going here, but here we uh, go. All right, here we go. I'm adding I'm back in. Did you, Grant? You're back with us. Thank you, Grant's checking in from the train. That's dedication, folks. Grant, I was asking about about Lewis Orr, um, you know what it was like to play for him, and then what he, you know, what the biggest things he taught you as a coach that you draw from him. Lewis Orr was just an unbelievable man. Um, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, to be recruited by him, be mentored by him. He was someone I probably talked to probably every other week up, up until he passed away. Um, you know, I always look forward to playing Georgetown just because that gave me the opportunity to, to talk to him, to pick his brain. I really wish he was here. There was moments I, I, I wish I could call him and, you know, ask questions with him. But Coach Orr was a tremendous, tremendous obviously coach, but an even better person and, you know, someone that I miss dearly as well as, you know, everyone that, you know, crossed paths with him in this lifetime. You, you know, Grant, kind of circling back to NJIT, I mean, you have a talented freshman class that you you really have tried to ingratiate with some, some older players. How are they doing? You know, particularly Tariq Francis, I see he's playing well and, you have a Roselle Catholic player in Sebastian Robinson. Take me through how that, that freshman class is developing. Um, I, I, I love the way they've been playing. You know, Tariq, is, uh, he's been tremendous. You know, he's been playing, um, I'd probably say at the moment, better than any freshman in the conference. You know, he had 22 last game on the road at UMBC. Um, was terrific as well against Bryant. Um, so he, he's been playing with great confidence. He's a kid I can put at the point as well as put off the ball when we need to score the basketball. Um, and the Sebastian, you know, he, he's just a winner. You, you look at his pedigree, uh, being at Roselle Catholic before that, he played for Coach Calicchio at Elizabeth, and he even started his career playing for Rick Brunson down in Camden High School. So even though he's been at a few different schools, you know, the one constant with Sebastian is he, he, he always won in high school. You know, as a junior, he led the state of New Jersey in scoring. So, um, you know, he, he's a terrific kid and, um, you know, has had some really good games for us. And, you know, the kid Levi Luol, he actually came to came to an open gym in August because he didn't have a school. Um, and he averaged 12 rebounds this past week, um, 15 against Brian, and then nine uh, on Saturday against UMBC. So uh, Levi's definitely my kind of front court player, kind of like a, a Mike NZ type. A little bit undersized, nothing flashy, but every, every time you look up, he just fills the stat sheet. Love it. The Mike, the Mike Enzi reference. Love it. Go ahead, Steve. 
Yeah, we got to know Isaac Hester a little bit at the shore over the last few years as, you know, really a great pure scorer. How's he been doing? He's doing good. You know, it's been a little bit of a transition for Isaac just going from, you know, high school uh, to college. But, you know, I think Isaac's going to be a really good player in our program, you know, once he's kind of understands the college game. Um, you know, some of the freshmen, they've been able to make that transition seamlessly, and some of them, you know, it's taken them a little bit of time it's taken Isaac a little bit of time but you know I threw him out there a little bit in the first half against UMBC and um you know he, he can really score the basketball so I'm excited about his scoring ability going forward is Tariq Francis uh Brandon Knight's nephew or godson or something there's a relation there right so so Tariq Francis and Brandon's dad grew up together they've been best friends since first grade um they both attended Pitt together uh, and, and Brandon's, you know, he, he's a mentor in his life. Okay. Um, but he, he, he's been tremendous. And, you know, it's, it's ironic just how small the basketball world works, Jerry. Really is. So so when I was being recruited coming out of high school, my two finalists were Seton Hall and Pittsburgh. And Barry Rorson was recruiting me at Pittsburgh. And I took you hang out with your host. They go by, they show you the apartment and everything like that. And Brand Brandon's dad's roommate was, you know, Big Tariq Francis. So fast huh. forward to, you know, a few weeks ago, we're playing a game and Slice is calling the game. Tariq Francis is my point guard. I'm coaching. And Brandon Knight's uh, wife and, and kids were at the game. So it's just funny that, you know, a relationship that I started in 2002 when I was on my official visit to Pittsburgh, you know, everyone was kind of back there in some way or shape or form, yep. either themselves or their kids. And, you know, we were all uh, in, in the gym together. Got to love that small world story. <laughs> hey, Grant, you know, it's it's becoming obviously a, a huge issue in college basketball, the retention of players and trying to keep guys for four years or, I don't know, at certainly at the mid-major, the NJIT level, that, that has – obviously been a big problem you develop players and and then they move on i'm just curious your thoughts on that and and how you kind of deal with all that you know steve you cut, you cut out a little bit but i heard part of the connection you, you know it's it's definitely a different age um but what we try to do we try to recruit the best possible players for this year's roster whether that was a fifth year player whether that was a, you know a, a kid that was coming right out of high school and, and we try to put together the best available roster now with taking on a bunch of you know taking a bunch of talented freshmen you you really just try to do right for them um you try to really set up a great culture and a great foundation and and, and have it be a place that they want to be at for four years now there will be a times that you know guys do leave because you know, that happens every year in college basketball but you know if, if guys do leave you want to make it a really hard decision for them and make this a place that they really love and you know, a, a great culture and a great foundation that they really want to stay at for four years. Grant, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is to give fans a glimpse of life off the court for basketball players. Um, tell us how, maybe give us an example or explain how your players balance NJIT's serious academic course load with the demand of playing Division One basketball, because NJIT is an elite, you know, institution academically. Yeah, you know what, Jerry? It's uh, 
you know, my, my staff has done a tremendous job really being on top of these guys. So for all the newcomers, uh, you know, we made them come in and do, and do six hours of study hall a week. Uh, there, there's tutoring available for these guys. And then when, when we're on the road, you know, if it's during the week and it's a Thursday game or whatever the case is, we, we make these guys, you know, the young kids get up and do study hall in the morning. So we keep emphasizing the academic component. And the one thing is when I, when I recruit these kids, I'm very straightforward. I tell them, you know, this, this is a school where you're going to have to put in a tremendous amount of work to excel here in the classroom. And, you know, I tell them this is not a school where I'm going to be able to put you in a major. I'm going to be able to hide you. There, there is no hiding here in the classroom. So I'm very straightforward in the academic process with how good of a school it is academically. Um, and, and we really try to recruit guys that were both good on the basketball court. And because of that, we had a 3.39 GPA in the fall semester and something I want to continue to build on in the spring semester as well. Good for you. It's a great GPA anywhere, but at NJIT, that's really good. So congratulations to you and your players. Go ahead, Steve. One more. You know, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, Grant, because you have worked with so many really good coaches from, you know, Kevin Boyle and Kevin Willard, John Dunn, Shaheen, uh, Donald Copeland. Can we talk about, you know, what you do in terms of trying to pick guys' brains and information and, and you know, trying to kind of exchange stuff with, with other coaches? Yeah, you know, I, I, I call Shaheen on a regular basis. Um, you know, just because he's, you know, he's obviously the head coach of our alma mater, but he, he took a he took a similar program, uh, you know, it's similar in you know city school in St. Peter's, and obviously he turned them into you know the, the most the best Cinderella story of all time in my lifetime that I think we'll ever see. Um, so I constantly call him. One of the things I call him, you know, talking to him about the referees at this level and, and adjusting to. You know the, the referees and it, the games called a little bit different, and um, you know you're not getting you know veteran officials who, you know five months ago we're doing Final Four games. You're getting guys that are a little bit younger and eventually want to make their way up there. And you know I'll call them about stuff like that or um, a situation I might have. So you know I'm in constant contact with um, pretty much everyone you mentioned, um, but I, I call probably Shaheen on the most regular basis just because he, he's not only been at you know this level but he exceeded at this level as well. Grant Billmeyer, they're going to be picking your brain someday, Grant. No question. Uh, pride is Seton Hall and now NJIT, a 22-point comeback. I have a feeling, Grant, it's a glimpse of the future for the Highlanders. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jersey Jump Shot, and we will hope to see you soon. Thanks, Jerry and Steve. I really appreciate it. You guys have a good one. Go Highlanders. All right, there you go. Grant Billmeyer, always good to hear from him, Steve. We've known Grant for a long time. And, uh, you know, really very little doubt that he will get it done at some point at NJIT, right? You can see yeah. the, the roots taking place now. He's He is, and you can see he's got a young roster, and he's got a lot of talent on there. So, you know, I just think it's a matter of time. Just got to keep him. Just got to keep him, and that's, you know, that's a big part of the job now. So, all right. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to bring in Chris Eisman who, you know, covered Rutgers, Purdue, Purdue, second-ranked team, won by eight points. Very good game. Rutgers had them on the ropes at the under four. They were within a bucket. Uh, Chris, you know, first of all, just, just your general takeaways from Rutgers' game against Purdue yesterday. I mean, look, Rutgers played well in almost every area, but they just didn't play well enough offensively. 
they didn't make enough shots. I mean, you know, you can't shoot 37.5% from the field against the number two team in the country. And they got off to a slow start. They shot 50% in the second half, which is how they hung around and really gave Purdue a, a good test and, and, you know, made it a good game. But starting so slow um, in the first half just really hurt them, especially because Purdue wasn't shooting that well early either. So if Rutgers was able to make some shots, that, you know, the first half might have looked a lot different. Rutgers maybe wouldn't have fallen into quite such a hole. And, you know, that game could have taken on a different different tone. But, look, I mean, Rutgers out-rebounded them. Uh, they played hard defensively. You know, I, in, in a lot of ways, it was one of the better games that Rutgers has had all season. They just got to make more shots. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think I think they're starting to show things are, are kind of moving in a good direction. But, you know, again, you, you just you got to play well better offensively to have any chance against the number two team in the country. Purdue's a really good team, and it wasn't good enough yesterday. A big part of these next six weeks for Rutgers, which is a long shot now to make the NCAA tournament, as we all know, is the development of their freshmen, Gavin Griffiths, Jermichael Davis. What did you see from them yesterday? They're, you know, they're, I think every game that you watch them, I, I think they're both getting better. I've always been really impressed with Jermichael Davis from the start of the season. I mean, he plays with a fearlessness as a freshman, um, takes shots, he's aggressive, uh, he's quick. You know, Steve Peichel always talks about how much energy he brings, not just in games, but in practice every day. I think he's going to be a really good player. And I think you're seeing Gavin Griffiths, you know, get better, get some more confidence. Obviously we know what he can do as a shooter. He does need to improve uh, defensively, but that's not necessarily a surprise for a freshman in the big 10 or in college basketball at all. So I think they're getting better. And Jerry, we talked about this, you know, on, on previous podcasts about kind of how the rest of the season is going to look now with Rutgers. I mean, obviously having a tough time getting into the tournament, you know, does Steve Peichel give his freshmen more playing time to develop them for the future? That's always a, a, a line that coaches have to walk. And But I, I think the fact that you are seeing those guys play better, you know, continue to improve, um, it, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how Steve Peichel handles that. Um, but I, I, I think that they're both, you know, like I said, I think they're on a really good trajectory, um, you know, the way they play. Confidence is the key, right, for Griffiths, for any freshman We've seen him really play without confidence for a long stretch this season, but he looked confident against Purdue, which if you can play conf with confidence against a team of <laughs> Purdue's caliber, that's a good sign. Uh, speaking of Purdue, Chris, I want to draw on your background, having covered the NBA and the Knicks for a number of years. What do you make of Zach Eady as a pro prospect? It's a fascinating case study because he's the best player in college basketball and his skills – the way he plays now just does not translate that well to the next level. And he has not been the first player to have this, you know, kind of face this type of issue. It's just a different game, you know, from going from college to the NBA and the NBA wants, you know, centers who can go out and shoot threes and, and kind of have a, a bigger offensive arsenal. There is talk that Zach Eady is kind of working himself higher into the first round. There's been talk, you know, you've seen it recently. Could he be a lottery pick? You know, he's gotten better defensively. He's been productive. Uh, he's been more efficient. Um, he's, you know, he's making improvements. But again, with somebody of his skill set, it just doesn't translate to being a starting, um, you know, NBA center. There's one guy that I think is interesting. I covered him with the Knicks. And I'm not, I don't want people to think that I'm comparing them as players. I'm just saying right. there's, a, there's a certain skill set. Luke Cornett. Okay, this guy was undrafted out of Vanderbilt, signed with the Knicks. He ended up getting a two-way contract. And... He's not an athletic player. I remember David Fisdale saying that, you know, he can't even jump over an envelope. But he's still in the NBA. He gets, he's 7-2. He's still in the NBA hanging around with the Celtics. So there is a spot for people with that, for, for guys with that type of skill set that you can kind of make a career in the NBA. You can stick around, you know, off the bench. 
but it's just it's amazing that somebody with you know Zach Eadie's skill set and maybe you know Matt Painter has been quoted in the past saying that he can shoot from the perimeter he just doesn't let him so maybe that's a skill set okay. that maybe he has that we just don't see enough of but it is fascinating because like I said his skill set is just not doesn't translate as well to the NBA but there's been talk that he's rising on on draft boards um, Jonathan Gaboni from ESPN who does a great job you know predicting that type of stuff and you know doing mock drafts he said that he's he's you know getting better he's written in the past in recent weeks that he's getting better and, and rising on board so it's, it's like I said it's a fascinating case study it's going to be interesting to see where he goes and what do you think about the way Edie's officiated I had a lot of Rutgers fans in my ear about his shuffling of his feet and the, you know the way he can't sort of camps out in the paint and he draws a gazillion fouls like what what do you think about the way He's officiated and the challenge of officiating a guy that size. I, I think that's exactly it. I, I feel like officials don't always know how to handle it because he is seven four. So how do you how do you officiate a guy you know who's seven four versus a guy who's six eight? It's just such a different animal, and it's just it, trying to figure out how you know is it a foul? Is it just incidental contact? I think officials struggle with it. Now yesterday, Zach Eady shot thirteen free throws. Rutgers as a team shot thirteen free throws. Right, right. Marie shot six. So I just think that there's no consistency, and I think that's what really bothers fans is that, you know, just if, if something's going to get called, call it all the time. You know, one official calls something, another doesn't. I think that's what really rankles a lot of fans that, you know, just make sure it's consistent across the board for both teams too. But I wanna, there's, no, there's not a lot of guys his size. <laughs> right, for sure. I want to throw in just a little bit of the nostalgia weekend about Rutgers that they had with the Ring of Honor. Really nice of them to bring back – the four surviving starters from the 1976 Final Four team to hang three of their jerseys from the rafters. The other two already were up there uh, from the other two starters, so it was a nice moment. And, and Rutgers fans did a great job responding, standing ovation, especially for Eddie Jordan, who we know, as we know, had three brutal years here as a head coach. Uh, I got to talk with Eddie at length on uh, Saturday at the special dinner they had for the families, and it was really good to see him. Eddie is a great guy, and he is accomplished and well-respected as an NBA assistant. I know he also was an NBA head coach, but really well-regarded as an NBA sort of a guard whisperer on the NBA level for guys like Jason Kidd and Kobe Bryant and Gilbert Arenas. Um, you know, Eddie, he uh, in his defense, he he was just a fish out of water who came into a burning building, for lack of a better word. Steve, you remember what you know, Rutgers athletic department, no AD, total disarray. Basketball program had no players. It was a national scandal. Uh, they tried to get Dan Hurley. He said no chance. They would try a few years later, and they come closer. But with with Hurley, but you know Eddie came, and all he asked for was to be paid market value uh, for a Big Ten coach. Uh, but we've seen it just doesn't work. Any you know Chris Mullen, uh, Patrick Ewing. You see it now with with um, what's going on in, in Michigan. Uh, you know these bringing in these NBA guys. It's a different world. It just doesn't work coaching coaching in college. It's two different sports, and it was just a rough transition. But Eddie still deserves a place high in the pantheon for what he accomplished for Rutgers as a player, being a good guy, and being a great ambassador for them through the years of his in his career in the NBA. So I was glad to see him return and get the standing ovation he deserves. And he was nervous about it. And I told him, Eddie, don't be nervous. Everybody knows and respects you're a Rutgers man and what you've done here, and you're going to get the ovation you deserve. And he did. So good to see Eddie back. 
kudos to him and to Rutgers fans for greeting him with open arms. And you knew they would, Steve. And you you know the whole background there, Steve. It's a really nice thing that happened this weekend at Rutgers for those guys. Absolutely. I think that was was such an important thing to, you know, for him to feel the embrace of, you know, Scarlet Nation yes. again. And, uh, you know, whatever happened in the past, you know, it, it's time to let bygones be bygones and move on. And he's always going to be a part of, you know, the greatest piece of history, you know, the program has right now. Yeah. So that was good to see. I wanted to say that I was really on a personal level. I really liked it. Like Eddie is a guy. I think he's a good guy who always had Rutgers best interests at heart, even if he wasn't able to deliver that as a coach. Um, so I wanted to mention that that was a nice little subplot to this weekend. All right, moving on to, uh, to Seton Hall. And, you know, Rutgers has Penn State at home, should mention, Wednesday night. And then they're at Michigan. Michigan's in really in a tailspin under Juwan Howard. Uh, but two winnable games for Rutgers. But, again, to me, it's more about the development side of things. Before We can't really talk Rutgers and NCAA tournament right now. I mean, who knows? Maybe things will change. But Seton Hall and NCAA tournament. All right, there's a lot to discuss here. The Pirates are 6-4 and four at the halfway mark of the league. They've lost three straight games. They're still in good shape, I think, because the hard part is over. The hard part of their schedule was the first half. So they're still in good shape. But the big thing that's been hovering over the program is Kadari Richmond's absence. He missed the last two games. Uh, and all Seton Hall would say about it was it was due to soreness. And as I tried to explain in writing and in tweets and whatnot, uh, it's just a different world now. You know, it's as with as we saw with Mawat Mag coming off the ACL, he was cleared. Mawat was cleared by the trainers and the doctors to play for contact in like early October, and he didn't suit up for a game till December because he just didn't feel like he was ready. You know, it was his body, it was his choice. And same thing with Kadari Richmond. Like he's feeling banged up, run down, sore, his back hurts, his you know, his foot hurts, whatever. It's ultimately they look at him, they don't have a there's no MRI with anything broken or you know, fractured or or torn uh, or strained, but ultimately it's his body. It's not like the old days when the doctor and trainer said, "You're good, get in there." Now players have some agency over that. Now, listen, if he had a if he had a fracture or a torn ACL, the doctor could tell him you cannot play. They still have that prerogative, but otherwise, this gray area here where the player decides, and that's really what has happened with Richmond here. He's decided that he he needs to heal up. And so, you know, he took two games to heal up. Uh, they play at DePaul on Tuesday night. I I think he'll be on the plane. Uh, I will be surprised if he doesn't travel with the intention of playing. I don't know because ultimately he's going to decide. But all signs point toward him getting back in the mix. And I just want to say one other thing about it. It's important to note Um put a wild rumor to rest. There was a rumor over the weekend that, that uh, this is his absence is some sort of NIL holdout. And it's just not true. Uh, and it really shocked me to the degree to which the rumor took hold. It was posted by just some random on a message board. And then like really just took life and was ricocheting around the country. I was getting calls from all over the place. Is Kadari Richmond really holding out for more NIL money? And it's just no, no, it's just not true. It's just some some schmo who posted a freaking rumor. <laughs> and so I'm um, I'm shocked. First of all, why are we 
why are we posting that on a message board? But I guess you could say, well, message boards, is, people post all kinds of rumors. So my second thing would be, how does anybody take that seriously? Like, how does this get into the mainstream bloodstream? So I, it's kind of scary. Like, I think you think of your own life if, and people could spread a rumor about you and God knows what people would take it seriously with no evidence. So it was a little bit uh, alarming. And I could Seton Hall have helped the situation maybe by being more clear about what exactly his injury was. I, I guess they could have. I mean, part of that's communication. But, you know, it's we're in this gray area where there's if there's no diagnosable injury, but the player isn't feeling right. That's what it was. And so I tried to explain that in writing. We try to explain, but yet people still go with the rumor mill. So I want to just put that part to rest. But, I mean, Steve, what a wild couple of days for Seton Hall. My goodness. Yeah, you, you know, with the all of that. And then, really, it was the perfect storm for Seton Hall, right? The one player they really can't afford to miss, right, is Kadari Richmond. And all season we've talked about, well, what's the kryptonite of this team? Well, it's the bench. So with him out, you know, there's there aren't guys to come in and fill in that void. And that has been kind of the perfect storm for Seton Hall during this three-game skid, you know. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be the really a problem moving forward, it could be, particularly the bench. Yeah, so I think, I think Rich will be back. If he's not back for DePaul, which, again, if I had to guess, I think he will be, then he'll be back after the bye for Georgetown. And then – they have they can get to 12. 12 and 6 gets them in. They're 6 and 4. They have plenty of winnable games at home. They take care of business. They're going to get to 12 and be in the NCAA tournament. Got to stay healthy. It's the number one thing, like you said. Uh, it's because of the bench is questionable. So that's Seton Hall. Let's talk Mammoth. Big win over Hofstra and Beer Garden and a packed crowd in West Long Branch. Tell me about it, Steve. Well, yes. <laughs> they, they had a beer garden for the first time, and it was – the most raucous crowd they've had in a while, probably since the pandemic, <laughs> if I can be honest. Because really, it's programs like Monmouth, you know, that, you know, the year without fans and then the next year with limited fans, they have struggled to come back from that. So it was really nice to see that uh, over the weekend. And, you know, listen, that should be a no brainer. Beer garden every game, right? Yeah. Now, my understanding is they are not going to have it. For Drexel, they have some kind of a permitting issue. Uh, but uh, in, my, in my opinion, whatever red tape, whatever hur hurdles you got to jump through to make that happen, let's get that done, you know, because that, that's important. But anyway, I love the most raucous crowd ever because of a beer garden lifts Mammoth past Hofstra. Can we get it noted in the box score that beer garden had one assist? Well, I got to tell you, it, it really, down the stretch, the crowd was so loud and it really did energize Mama. It was a great comeback. And honestly, it was a great college basketball game. Xander Rice, who's now the leading scorer in the CAA, had 31. Tyler wow. Thomas from, from Hofstra, who's the second leading scorer, had 24. And D Stone Dubar, who's number five in the league, had 21. It was a really good game. Mammoth came from way back. And, and Xander saved him at the end, as he usually does. And really, he is he's in line for CAA Player of the Year at this point. No question. I, quickly, on Mamet's big game, now they have a rematch with Drexel, who they played really hard down in Philly. That's Thursday, Steve. Give me the quick scouting report on, on this game and how big it is at home now. What you want to see out of those Mammoth fans, beer garden or no beer garden? Yeah, and beer garden or no beer garden, they're going to need a good crowd. And, I mean, they're going to need even more energy in this one. Listen, Mammoth had those guys at Drexel. They played well. They had a lead late. 
you know, they had young kids who made mistakes late and they couldn't hold them off. So now, you know, two weeks later, let's see if those kids have grown up a little more and they can pull that off. And if they do, you know, now you're looking at, at Mammoth in a whole new light. You're looking at a Mammoth team that's in the upper tier of the CAA now. And that's a, that's a far cry from where they were last year. What a season they're having. What a year for the Rice family, King and Xander. Uh, and so mid-major action, you know, we had some FDU with a big win over Sacred Heart. They're in the mix in the middle of the pack in the Northeast Conference. Uh, we have St. Peter's and Ryder winning over the weekend. St. Peter's is 7-2. and two. Bashir Mason's in, in the running for Coach of the Year in the MAC. Ryder's at 4-5 and five and finally showing some life. And then Princeton got smoked at Cornell. Not a surprise they lost because they've struggled at Cornell. Cornell's really good. Brian Earl, Shawnee High School, former Princeton star, former assistant under Mitch Henderson. He kind of has the Princeton code. So not a real surprise there. But now they go to Yale. And now, look, if you want to think in terms of Princeton, could they get an at-large bid? Now I think they have to win at Yale to do that. Be very tough on Friday. I think they get one They get one mulligan in conference. They took it against Cornell. Obviously, Yale will be a must-win for them. If they want, if you want to think at-large bid, 15-2, and two, though, Princeton still having a great season. And then, of course, the Ivy League tournament in March at Columbia. So really a fascinating time. A lot of Jersey schools in the mix. Good storylines. Thanks to Grant Billmeyer for coming on. Uh, love Grant. He's a longtime staple in New Jersey basketball. We'll be keeping track of him at NGIT. Thanks, Steve and Chris, for talking hoops, talking shop. We'll be back next week to do some more of it on the Jersey Jump Shot.